right speech. <laughs> First plug in the microphone. Then, um, <laughs> then say what is truthful and useful. <laughs> okay, spoken at the right moment and spoken with compassion. And then in that way, also avoiding lying, harsh words, um, slanderous or divisive speech, and idle talk. And then in right or perfect action, um, to by abandoning physically harming others, especially killing them, then to practice protecting life. So we talked about releasing animals and saving lives. And then... Um, the second thing is to abandon stealing or taking what hasn't been given to us and also to practice generosity, uh, not only material generosity, but generosity of our service, trying also to protect others from harm and generosity of the Dharma. And then the third one, which we didn't get to finish in the uh, right action, is to um, um, abandon unwise sexual behavior. And this includes um, any kind of sexual behavior that is damaging to self and others. Uh, the primary thing here is adultery, meaning that uh, whether you're married or not, if you're in a, a committed relationship, um, going outside of that, or if you're single, you go with somebody who is in a committed relationship. Um, for those of you who were at the Thursday night talk, I was... Uh, you know, the whole thing of sex came up so much in the conference with the Western Buddhist teachers. Typical for us Westerners. <laughs> the mind obsessed. Um, you know, that you have to even go as far to darn solid and talk to the Dalai Lama about sex. <laughs> but um, how, uh, you know, it was said in the conference that Thich Nhat Hanh was, uh, had said that he felt... Um, any kind of sexual contact where there was, um, you know, like the possibility of a committed relationship was fine, but whether, when it was just frivolous sex, then that was Thich Nhat Hanh's definition of unwise sexual behavior. And His Holiness was saying, well, that's not the way it is traditionally in the scriptures. Um, and But then the next day he came back and he said, well, I was thinking about that, and actually I think that's good. I think that's right. Yeah. So uh, I thought I thought that was quite interesting that he came around to that. No, no, no. Sex that is harmful to self or others. Okay, you know. So, for example, you know, if you know that you are HIV positive, then without telling your partner and without practicing any kind of protection, then having sexual relationships. You know, that kind of thing. Or kind of manipulating somebody else emotionally, yeah, to get them to have sex, forcing, you know, this kind of either verbal manipulation, physical force, something like that that is quite damaging to others. Uh-huh. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh emphasizes very much, you know, this feeling, and His Holiness does too, just this feeling of um, responsibility and commitment. To, to other people, not only in terms of intimate or sexual relationships, but in terms of, of relationships generally with people, you know, to really um, look at people as treasures to uncover, not as tools to be used. Okay, so um, the reason behind celibacy and directing 
the reason for it being directing the energy towards the Dharma. This happens on many, many levels. Um, on one level, and His Holiness commented about this in the teachers' conference, he was saying that, um, you know, many people after they become monastics and become celibate, that because the physical energy is retained, then also their health improves. So that, that could be one thing. You know, it, for some people, maybe it doesn't work this way. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends a lot on your mind. But also so that you uh, can direct your energy towards the Dharma. If, um, I mean, I just know for myself, from my own personal experience, if I let my mind generate a lot of attachment, either emotional attachment to somebody or sexual attachment, then when I sit down to meditate, what my mind much prefers to think about is the things that I'm attached to. Yeah, that are wonderful, that bring a sense of security and pleasure. And that's much nicer to think about than, you know, death and refuge and karma. You know? I mean, visualizing some incredibly nice guy and all of You know, I mean, my mind just goes off. It becomes very difficult to meditate. Okay? So on the level of distraction in your meditation, if you have more restraint in your break time and don't get involved in relationships, it becomes much easier to meditate. That's also another reason why when people come on retreats, I ask them to be celibate, simply because it cuts out in your mind a lot of that, and it cuts out also a lot of the trips relating, you know, how you relate to other people. Because when the mind is actively looking for, you know, interested in sexual relationships, then, you know, you can just watch how your behavior changes, what your mind does when you meet somebody who is physically attracted to you or emotionally attracted. And you get into incredible amounts of really, you know, all sorts of trips. And I mean, the kind of the levels of this, after I took ordination, it became much, much clearer to me the kinds of trips we get onto, um, you know, when there's, when there's attraction involved with somebody else. So celibacy also cuts out that stuff. And then another way in, in, where, in which it helps you direct your energy towards the Dharma is that for example, you know, if I had a husband and kids, it would be really difficult to um, to be giving Dharma teachings the way I am. I mean, you wouldn't have just a chala walking in and out of the room. You'd have my kids, you know, you'd have my husband, you'd have, you know, my in-laws calling on the phone, and, you know, and everything else. And it just becomes much more difficult to find the time to do retreat, you know, to go on retreat, to go on teachings, to do these things because of the family commitment, you know, because your family needs you. They want you. You want them. It, it becomes more difficult. So that's another reason also for, um, you know, for being celibate. Yeah? So it's good that they have one-generation Buddhism. Um, <laughs> sometimes people ask me that. I've never seen Buddhism in the danger, you know, that, that danger <laughs> happening, yeah. I've never seen everybody rushing to the monasteries to ordain so that we weren't going to have any, gener- you know, future generations of Buddhists. I, I you know. So if you want to practice within a couple relationship, how to do that? Yeah. Um, first of all, I would I would recommend um, if you aren't already in a relationship. I mean, if you're already in one, then you know work with 
the person you're with. But if you aren't already in one, then um, I would advise looking for somebody who also has similar, similar spiritual interest, okay, who also wants to follow the Buddhist path um, more particularly. Um, and somebody who you can talk with about Buddhism and who encourages you in your practice. You know, somebody that maybe you can meditate with who has some good discipline, who gets up in the morning. So if you want to sleep in, that person kind of nudges you and says, come, you know, let's meditate. And then don't get mad at them and start a fight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You imagine that. You have to have Buddhist marriage counselors. (laughs) My husband woke me up and nags me to go meditate with him in the morning. So somebody who really has, has an active interest in practice, an active interest in, in the kind of Buddhist values that you have. So somebody that you can talk with about Buddhism that encourages you in your practice, that understands that spiritual side of you. you know? And I mean, actually, in terms of fr- in friendships in general, not just I'm not just giving advice for how to find a spouse, but um, <laughs> you know, just just for friends in general. Um, I mean, this is why our Buddhist friends are so precious and so valuable, because they understand that spiritual side of us and the accompanying values that, that we have. You know, that the most important thing in our life isn't money and success and fame. You know, or at least we pretend it isn't. You know, we might have that underneath. But, you know, we give lip service to that. <laughs> and we try and actualize it. Okay? So the people who share those, those same kind of values... Um, you know, are very precious to us. Okay? And so then I, I would recommend, you know, like if you, if you have a, a partner, you know, go on retreats together, or one of you go on retreat and one of you stay home, you know, to give the other person space, and really support each other in wanting to have quiet time alone or quiet time to go to class or, or to, to meditate. Like that. Okay. So, um, and so the corresponding thing with, you know, to avoid unwise sexual behavior then is to really try and take care of our body and um, to use it in a proper way. And not only use it in a proper way sexually, but just take care of our body in a general way to keep it healthy. Um, and so this does not mean being attached to our body and fussing over our body, but it means recognizing that our body is the vehicle through which we can practice the Dharma, and thus because we value Dharma practice, we value our health. In Thursday, you know, in Thursday's talk, I mentioned how, um, you know, one of the Western psychologists who was there was describing to His Holiness how Westerners often feel out of touch with their bodies and alienated from their bodies. And His Holiness made the comment about, but you care so much about your health and your appearance and your exercise. And he had a hard time putting those two things together. But actually, I think in our society, they go very much together that somehow, because people may not feel comfortable in their bodies, then they go to the extreme of, you know, trying to make their body into the perfect body, you know, making it look the way they think that it should look according to the models in the magazine, and becoming obsessed with appearance, obsessed with exercise, not in a healthy, respectful way, but in a way of, of kind of almost obsession or compulsion. So here when we're talking about this, we're talking about in a really healthy way, um, 
you know, not out of attachment, not because, oh, I love my body. And, you know, we don't have to go into this big thing about body is beautiful. But then we also don't have to go into the big thing of body is evil and sinful. In other words, we draw, we completely drop that whole dichotomy. Because I think what often happens is in a Western Christian culture, you get this body is evil, body is sinful, sex is evil, you know, vanity is evil. And so we grow up with all that. And then in an effort to counteract that, then we get into this kind of fanatic um, exercise, beauty, all this other stuff kind of trip to do with the body. And yet still, in spite of that, we don't feel comfortable with the body. Okay? So it's kind of, when you're really obsessed with this extreme, going to the total other extreme doesn't necessarily balance it out. It could mean you're, you're equally obsessed. Okay? And so what we're trying to do here is completely drop all that false discrimination regarding the body. You know, and not say it's especially beautiful and fantastic, because if you look at the inside of our body, it isn't beautiful and fantastic. But not saying the body is evil and useless either, because the body can be productive and it is the vehicle that supports our Dharma practice and enables us to be of service to others. Okay, so it revolves really, and I think this takes a good deal of real meditation and contemplation about to, to look into um, and really do some research. You know, what is my view about my body? What is my view about sexuality? And 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 I'm not equating these two either because there's much more to the body than sexuality. Um, but just recognizing uh, kind of the con- the preconceptions we have in our mind, and then looking at some way to balance them out and drop those things, and not just go to the other extreme. You know. Because sometimes when when you're really stuck here, you try and deny this and go to the other extreme there. And what you want to do is drop both the extremes. So I suggest, you know, it's really valuable to work on that in your meditation because it, it brings back much more acceptance of our body. And I think the more we can accept our body, the happier we're going to be in our life. Um, you know, especially because our body is going to age. Okay, all of us are aging, so we're getting more wrinkles. Okay, we're getting closer to death. We're getting closer to having cancer and lung disease and kidney failure and everything else. And if we don't die of one thing, we are going to die of another thing. You know, Um, (laughs) as Lee said, we all have a terminal diagnosis. We just don't know what it is yet. (laughs) You know, when we do the death and dying workshops together, she said. And it's true, and the more we can just kind of recognize, yes, that is true, you know, and I don't need to freak out about it, and I don't need to ignore it and deny it either, but I can accept that as a fact of my life, and then also use that to energize my practice. Then we come to have a, you know, kind of a healthy view towards our body and and its functions and what will happen to it, and then we become able to accept sickness and aging and death instead of freaking out about those. Because I think, you know, a lot of our difficulty as we grow over, older is making these transitions between having a young and healthy body to having, a, you know, a body that is getting sick a lot more because it's aging and a body that isn't so attractive. 
you know, and if we live that, sl- that long, that's what's going to happen to us. So if we can kind of make some peace about it, then when it, ha- when it happens, we're not going to freak out. Uh-huh. What did you mean by use Practice. Well, if we realize, for example, actually this is going to come up when I talk about effort, but tonight's talk will just get talked upside down um okay if i realize for example that that now my body is healthy okay but it has the potential to become unhealthy then i tend to treasure more the health and say well let's use my body now as the basis for my dharma practice and let's do some real serious practice now while i'm healthy because when i get unhealthy it's going to be real difficult to practice so, so let's really use the time and the advantage that health provides right now. And the same thing with youth. You know, while we have some youth, then let's really engage in the practice because it's much easier to do than when you're, you know, really, really old and you have, you know, your eyes are failing and your ears are failing and, you know, you're much sleepier and it's harder to walk and, and things like that. So in that way, if we recognize um, where we are now in relationship to the whole life cycle, then it, it energizes us to use the opportunity we have now for Dharma practice instead of just for having a good time and fulfilling our sense pleasure desires. Yeah? Because the thing is, you know, we go around, we fulfill all our sense pleasure desires, but then all that pleasure, it doesn't last, and as soon as it's over, you can't retrieve it. You have nothing to show for it. You know, like this, you know, it was great and beautiful weather today and maybe you went to the beach, maybe you took a walk around Green Lake, maybe you stayed out in the sun and it was great and you enjoyed it and it was wonderful, but now it's all over. Yeah? And what do we have to show for it that's going to be of any lasting benefit from that pleasure that we experienced all day? You know, what do we have to show for it? You know, in terms of karma, nothing. Yeah, complete zilch in terms of preparing for future lives, in terms of bringing us closer to liberation and enlightenment, you know, in terms of cultivating positive states of mind and developing wisdom and developing loving kindness. All that sense pleasure didn't do any of that for us. It just consumed a lot of time, gave us some temporal happiness, and none of that happiness is here right now. So they often compare sense pleasure to the happiness you experienced in your dream last night. You know, like your dream, maybe you had this fantastic, super, incredible dream, you know, with this incredible person you were with, just, I mean, it was just too much, super deluxe. But then you wake up, where's the dream? Gone, finished. And so in a similar way, you know, just living our life solely for the purpose of having sense pleasure leaves us with that same kind of emptiness as soon as it's over. And I think that's what really leads to um, people having a lot of regret at the time of death, because at the time they die, you know, we we look over our whole life and we say, okay, my whole life I spent, and what did I do in my whole life? You know, and so people go through this whole list of things they did, but then the question is, well, what comes with me now that I'm dying? Yeah, I did all that. I made it to the top of the corporate ladder and I got this incredible house and, you know, I, I was so famous and I won the trophy in, you know, rollerblading and I, you know, <laughs> and I did this and that and, you know, I was the best artist and the best musician and da, 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 you know, and I had all this pleasure and everybody loved me. I was so popular. 
but now I'm dying. You know, what what if that comes with? And that's when people develop a lot of regret and a lot of fear. Because it's real, real clear at the time of death that none of that stuff goes with us. I mean, the only thing that goes with us when we die is is our mental consciousness and the karmic imprints, you know, that we've accumulated from the actions we've done our whole life. So if we if all the actions we've done our whole life have just been done out of a selfish motivation for our own pleasure, then we have nothing to show, you know, then all the imprints that go with us are just the imprints of selfish pleasure. Whereas if we spend our life doing, you know, trying to generate constructive mental states and an attitude of kindness and concern for others, an attitude of selfless giving or generosity or ethics or whatever, you know, patience, and we do actions motivated by that, then when we die, all these kinds of imprints and habitual tendencies go with us. And there's a real sense of richness and fullness and accomplishment and a lack of fear. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, th- does aging mean our ability to practice deteriorates? I mean, it's it's going to be, of course, unique to the individual. I mean, some person maybe, you know, in their youth they were just wild and, you know, all over the place, and it was only when they got old that they started waking up and thinking about the meaning of life. So, I mean, for that person, it's it's kind of, diff- you know, it's a different situation. But in general, in terms of our physical capacity, you know, when the body starts becoming more uncomfortable and losing its power as it does as it ages, that in itself, you know, it just makes one more thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was real interesting for me when I, I lead... Uh, in the winter, a course with one sociology professor for students at Chapman University. We've done it two winters now. We're going to do it again this year at Cloud Mountain. And she's in her 60s, a wonderful, very incredible woman. Um, but I've really noticed the last two, two years, and she's told me, that she has a hard time hearing. You know, she comes to the morning meditations and she can't hear when we lead the meditations. Or we're giving a Dharma talk and she can't hear. And how distressing that was to her. And I recently got a letter from her and she told me she got a hearing aid and how much better it was. You know? But just that, I think it was a big psychological jump for her to actually get a hearing aid. Yeah. So just, you know, those kind of routine physical things that, that can come into it. Okay. I mean, of course, the mind... You know, many people mature as they, as they age, and, you know, the dharma becomes much more vital and vibrant to them. 